Hello, I'm Chris Biddle and welcome to Inside AgriTurf, in which I will be talking to those at the heart of the farm and grass machinery industry. Hello and welcome to episode three of Inside AgriTurf. And today I will give you a personal view of a company, nay, a legendary institution that has been embedded in the outdoor power equipment market for over 100 years, but which has reached a real turning point in its history. Briggs & Stratton is a company with a long, rich history. Over the years, we've made some legendary and dependable products that really are intended to bring power to people, get work done, and make their lives better. I'm Todd Teske, CEO of Briggs & Stratton. We're proud of our past, but we've been changing in a lot of different ways and are really excited about the future of our company. Yes, of course, I refer to the Briggs & Stratton Corporation, who on the 20th of July 2020 filed for Chapter 11 of the U.S. Bankruptcy Code and in effect lost control of their company founded back in 1909. At the same time, they reached an agreement with private equity company KPS Capital Partners, who would acquire all the company's assets in return for sufficient funding to allow the company to continue trading. Now, I'm recording this just two days after the deal was finalised, and I don't want to go into all the detail or ramifications of the agreement. That is for another time, and you'll be able to read about it in various press reports. Now, I've had a long association with the company, not as an employee, but first as a dealer, and in latter years as a trade commentator, when I've had the opportunity to visit uh, Briggs & Stratton in the United States, their plants, and meet, talk, and interview they're key people from Fred Stratton, the erstwhile chairman, to many of the UK and European management team. I'm not an insider, so this is very much a view from the touchline. Now, certain brand names transcend the industry they serve. They shout heritage, longevity and trust. They are recognisable worldwide, even if their products are not widely known. The name certainly is. And in this agriturf sector, one thinks of John Deere, possibly Massey Ferguson, Honda in a wider context, and Briggs & Stratton. Which is strange, because Briggs & Stratton have never marketed a lawnmower under their own name. Yet how many homeowners will claim that they have a Briggs & Stratton mower? They are, if you like, the Intel of the outdoor power equipment market with millions upon millions of engines used worldwide in an extraordinary array of equipment. The company's claim to be the world's largest manufacturer of small engines can hardly be challenged. And so how on earth did they come to the verge of a virtual wipeout from such a dominant position? It wasn't certainly for the lack of ingenuity, innovation, marketing or engineering prowess. In my view, their reliance on others manufacturing or indeed selling core products meant that they were never really in control of their own destiny. Of course, other uncontrollable factors such as the economy or weather sometimes worked for them. The increasing occurrence of extreme weather conditions, hurricanes, tornadoes, floods in the US and across the world often provided them with a huge spike in demand, which they were able to respond to rapidly from their plants in the US, something they couldn't do if large chunks of manufacturing capacity had been transferred 
to the Far East. Now, COVID-19 was obviously a contributory factor in their applying for Chapter 11 protection and certainly had a major impact on their plans to restructure the business. But really, the challenges facing Briggs & Stratton date back possibly to the 1950s and 1960s. That was a boom time for lawnmowers, and Briggs & Stratton capitalised on it by coming up with the design of a lightweight aluminium or aluminum engine design to replace the much heavier cast iron casings. Between 1955 and 1959, sales more than doubled from $40 million to $90 million. Sales and service of replacement engines were channeled through almost 40,000 independent specialist dealers spread across the US. But it was also a time when serious labour issues were rife as powerful unions, particularly in the northern states, exerted pressure on companies such as Briggs & Stratton to increase wages. The first major stoppage took place in January 1950 when the unions called a major strike at Briggs & Stratton that was to last for 15 weeks. Picket lines were formed and many employees were subject to intimidation and physical attacks. It was resolved but at a considerable cost to the company, but at least it brought them a decade or so of stability. As they moved into the 1970s and 80s, the market was undergoing huge change. Big box stores with huge purchasing power were starting to dominate. The independent servicing dealer was in retreat. Price was king and this placed enormous pressure on manufacturing costs. But such matters were not really the concerns of unions who once again started to threaten strike action. In 1971, the company only narrowly avoided conflict by agreeing a 25% pay increase for each of the following years. Three years later, in 1974, the union again upped its demand and called a three-week strike, which was only settled when Briggs & Stratton agreed a staggering 32.5% pay increase over the following three years. And when that time was up, the unions came back again with similar demands, which the company reluctantly agreed to avoid further strike action. It was a ridiculous and unsustainable situation, which meant that Briggs & Stratton were paying workers 25% more than US competitors and over 50% more than foreign engine makers. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. Fred Stratton and his colleagues responded by threatening to replace all strikers with non-union labour. It was ridiculous that we should be held to ransom like that, and I vowed then that never again, he said. It was to be a turning point in the company's history. In the event, the unions accepted a 2% wage increase over three years, but more relevantly, it set in motion an operational shift in production facilities away from the union hotbed of Milwaukee. Now, I only recount this in some detail because the events of the 1970s and 80s almost certainly shaped the company's thinking in subsequent years as they were faced with a series of challenges. There was the obvious need to reduce manufacturing costs and eliminate threats from unions. They had to meet the escalating bargaining power of the big box stores and they also had to adapt and design engines for ever more stringent noise and emission controls. But 
crucially, they had to combat the growing challenge of manufacturers from the Far East who had a powerful marketing message, that of a single brand name for engine and machine. Honda were first out of the blocks with an established name in the automotive business, and they were followed by Yamaha, who flattered to deceive, but ultimately decided that the lawnmower business was not for them. By contrast, Briggs and Stratton were continually vowing that they would never put their name on the front of a whole goods product. So the company decided to move south, first to Kentucky in 1986, then to Poplar Bluff in Missouri in 1989. Both locations appealed to Fred Stratton. Both were non-union, both offered the company development grants and had a willing workforce and could also attract a pool of eager college-educated students for part-time or seasonal work. At the same time, the company also bowed to the inevitable and moved production of some Vanguard models to the Far East in a 50-50 deal with Daihatsu. There were also dalliances with Mitsubishi and Komatsu Zenoa, but none lasted, including the Daihatsu deal. During the 1990s, further plants were established in Alabama and Georgia, which fitted the company's new criteria and also included being nearer many of their major customers, such as Murray and MTD. Of course, the unions in Milwaukee were not happy, as by 1997, 2,000 jobs had been lost, representing some 37% of the Milwaukee workforce. But in actual fact, this brutal relocation was only the prelude to seismic changes taking place in manufacturing techniques across the world as automation took over. Nonetheless, it would have been tough on those at the heart of the Briggs & Stratton Milwaukee family. The company had been a major employer in the Wisconsin city for over 80 years. Management had been passed down through family connections. and Fred Stratton had his name above the door and many of the workforce had been, been employed across family generations. For Fred Stratton himself, he told me once that it was a very strange period. On one hand, I was loathed by the unions and many in my hometown. On the other, I was the favourite of the nation's analysts and investors, who suddenly saw a very bright future for the company after all the tough measures we had taken. Now, the one quality that Briggs & Stratton has never been short of is innovation. Over the years, they have redesigned, re-engineered and reimagined the products to meet changing needs and conditions. The aluminium engine, aluminium, sorry, for a start. Easy spin starting through a compression release mechanism. Synchro balanced engines to reduce vibration. Solid state ignition, which actually upset many dealers who had built much of their service business on replacing points and plugs. And in recent years, Instart, Moen Stowe and Exe, where there were no oil changes. And away from engineering, there was the introduction of Powercom 2000, designed as a universal computer program for the lawn and garden industry, a great idea which was probably ahead of its time. In 1980, Briggs & Stratton even designed and built a hybrid car with six wheels and powered by an 18-horsepower twin-cylinder engine supplemented by an electric motor using 12 6-volt batteries. It had a top speed of 40 miles an hour and was rated at 0 to 40 in 33 seconds. Although it was ahead of its time and the project only lasted for three years, some of the technology developed by Briggs engineers is in current use in models such as the Toyota Prius. So there is little doubt that engineering ingenuity has been in the Briggs & Stratton DNA from the very beginning. Now it could be said 
that the current problems stem from decisions taken during the early 2000s to enter the whole goods market. First with generators through the purchase of Generac, which seemed to make sense at the time. That was followed in 2004 by the purchase of Ferris, a favourite of US landscapers and contractors. Then a year later, Snapper and Simplicity. Then there was a virtually forced purchase of Murray, one of its biggest customers, who were facing bankruptcy, which would have caused Briggs to lose an enormous amount of money. For Briggs & Stratton, there followed the purchase of Australian heritage brand Victor in 2008, and more recently Billy Goat, famed for its leaf connectors in 2015. However, with all these acquisitions, Briggs had become a major rival to many of its customers. Yes, the company had grown and expanded, but also lost focus from their core purpose, and it seems were unable to capitalise when their main rivals, first Tecumseh and then Cola, exited the small engine market. Yes, you can set up as many specialist divisions as you like, appoint dozens of specific product group management teams, but all the time the danger comes from a lack of focus. Number one, what are we good at? What are we known for? and what drives our business. I'm absolutely sure that the decision to enter the end product business was made for all the good reasons at the time. But looking back, there has to be a question mark over that strategy. After all, it was often said at the time, with low-cost product and margins being cut to the bone, that the only people to make money out of the mower sale was the engine provider. There was to be a further setback for Briggs & Stratton when one of their biggest customers, the major retail chain Sears, went bust two years ago. Now, CEO Todd Teske and his colleagues will have been wrestling with tough trading conditions for years and realised that refocusing the business was probably the only way forward. After all, the signs were plain to see. From a high of $40 a share in 2005, they had dropped to less than a dollar this year. The clock was ticking, which is why Briggs had already announced plans to sell off the products line earlier this year, and that may well have happened had not the epidemic forced much of the industrial world to shut down, and that left little wiggle room for the company and resulted in the recent move into the protection of Chapter 11. Now, there is no certainty at the moment that Briggs & Stratton will remain under the control of KPS Capital Partners. Other parties may come in with a higher bid, but in the current worldwide economic climate, a deal on the table at least enables the company to move forward. It will be for others now to make the decision on the possible sale of assets, again in difficult trading conditions. And it is highly likely that Briggs & Stratton will once again focus on the core business that has served them so well over many, many years, that of providing power for machinery and equipment used by homeowners and industry, whether it be gasoline, other fuels or indeed battery power, which is the company has been increasingly developing in recent years. Now, unfortunately, this type of rescue deal rarely comes without reputational damage. Headlines screaming Briggs & Stratton goes bust will be seized on by competitors. Existing suppliers will possibly be caught up as unsecured creditors. There'll be, there will be focus on payouts to directors ahead of the deal and changes to benefits for former employees. And of course, there will be uncertainty amongst staff 
and customers. All these come with the territory in such circumstances. But other companies, and some in our industry, have been through similar processes and successfully moved forward. It's early days and nobody is quite sure of the route forward to be taken by KPS Capital Partners, if indeed it is them. On the face of it, they have a successful record of turning around companies in their portfolio, including those such as TaylorMade, the golf equipment supplier. And, and yes, it could go in one of two ways. Either sell off the products and focus entirely on the provision of power units, or perhaps another option. We are in uncertain and volatile times. Companies around the world are rationalising. They're dropping lines that do not fit. John Deere recently exited the domestic and semi-pro grass-cutting market by selling off Sabo, and others are doing the same. And so there are market segments opening up. And maybe, with the strength of the Briggs & Stratton brand, its engineering and innovation track record over many years, we could see a major force be established in both power and product development. But that's just a thought. I'm sure that there will have been much reflection within Briggs & Stratton about past strategies. Hindsight is useful, but ultimately useless. The clocks cannot be turned back. However, the future can and will be underpinned by the heritage and achievements of scores of Briggs & Stratton people across the ages, their dealers, distributors and, of course, satisfied customers. I have a mighty tome in my office called The Legend of Briggs & Stratton. It's a huge book. It only takes the Briggs story up to the end of the 1990s, but it catalogues an extraordinary tale of triumphs, failures, setbacks and exciting innovations. From the day over a century ago, when one of the founders, Stephen Briggs, showed creative mechanical aptitude, even in his college days, and said, I wired most of the town for electricity and fixed many of the autos. Over the years, Briggs & Stratton have displayed similar creativity, and that surely will not be lost as they move into a new phase of their history. I and many others in the trade will certainly wish them well for whatever lies ahead. I'm Chris Biddle. Thank you for joining me, and this is Inside Agritech.